Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike, Mike Zlotnik, and today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Jeremy Roll. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you kindly for joining. And you have a, quite a resume. Um, uh, you've been a real estate investor since, it looks like from 2012, you're a Wharton graduate, and uh, you're sort of the ultimate passive investor. I'd like you to introduce yourself a little bit more for first of all before you go into real estate investing a couple of words about you your family where you live and then how did your journey start being a passive real estate investor and and uh, where you are today absolutely yeah thanks again for having me on i hope this is helpful for your listeners and actually i started investing in real estate in 2002 so it's been almost 20 years now um so I live in Los Angeles. Um, I've been out here since 2000. I'm actually originally from Montreal, Canada. So I spent half my life in Montreal, which is where I was born and grew up. Uh, then went down to UPenn or Wharton, did an MBA in 98 to 2000. And that was my transition to the US. And then I've been in the US ever since uh, in LA since 2000. Um, and um, I basically spent over 10 years in the corporate world, having an MBA from the Wharton School, but then eventually got out of the corporate world from cash flow from passive investing. So I've been a, a passive investor since 2002, but what I call a full-time passive cash flow investor since 2007. Um, and my number one goal at this point, honestly, is to continue all my cash flow streams. So I never have to go back to the corporate world. That's been my focus since 2007. Um, now, as far as how I got into all this, uh, back in 2001, for those of you who are old enough to remember, um, the dot-com crash happened and I had my money in stocks and bonds, right? Working in the corporate world. And I honestly was like, sick and tired of the volatility after the dot-com crash of the stock market, because I'm just a really low risk, low, like stolen study, more predictability type of guy. So I looked at different ways to invest and looked at various different options. And I concluded for myself that if I wanted more predictability, that stabilized cash flowing opportunities would be probably a better fit for me. And that real estate ended up having to fit that very well, more highly occupied properties, for example. So I started to rotate all my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow focused alternative opportunities as a passive investor in 2002 when I was in the corporate world, I was working at Disney headquarters at the time. And I eventually rotated all my money from stocks and bonds between 02 and 07 into cash flow. And then I had a last draw moment in the corporate world. I was working at Toyota headquarters actually here in LA at that time. I last draw moment with my manager and decided to take a risk and leave the corporate world in 07. It wasn't my plan to get out of the corporate world from the cash flow. My plan was to get the W-2 and the cash flow, but just have more predictable uh, retirement strategy with the cash flow as opposed to the ups and downs of the stock market. Um, but I decided to take a risk and leave the corporate world in 2007 because I had enough cash flow built up to live off of at that point. So that's why I left. And then I kind of took that risk. And it's so far, it's been working out well, you know, 14 years later, getting my fingers crossed because that's my hope for the rest of my life. And we'll see. Well, it's been a great journey, and I, I, I had a similar story. I had a corporate world and exited in 2009 and started investing in 2000. So I relate a little bit to being wearing those two hats while uh, having corporate career and then doing passive investing. And uh, for sure, for those of us who have gone through the journey, it, it is a great journey to um, uh, find outstanding assets. You would do the work once, you deploy the capital, the capital works for you if you make good investments. So where, just quickly, uh, where have you been investing? Uh, LA, like New York, right? 
these are not great cash flow markets. They just tough to find great cash flow deals unless you go into really rough area, and then you have a management problems from you know from that perspective. So where have you been invested? Yeah, great question. So um, what I've done is I created very specific parameters for myself as I went along and learned more you know over time as to what made the most sense for me. So I generally invest in Class B assets and what I call an A minus or B market. And I, I do not invest in two specific types of markets. I invest outside of very volatile pricing markets. So Los Angeles is a great example. We get a ton of price increases and then decreases during the cycle. So I avoid LA, San Francisco, New York, all the major markets that have a more price volatility. And I also avoid markets that are hot. So I love, for example, Denver and Seattle. I've been both, both of those cities visited in the past few years. I love them both, but they were very hot. Um, people were chasing a lot of multifamily deals in the last few years. And so I stay away from what's hot because I just look for more predictable kind of low risk passive cash flow. And so I tend to invest a lot in many, frankly, whatever doesn't work. And I mean, I've invested across 43 states, you know, across all the time. I am um, kind of what I call hyper diversified. I'm in over 60 LLCs currently. I've been involved in over 30, 40 sales in the last few years. I am, so I've easily been in over hundred LLCs, you know, over time. Um, and so um I mean, so I guess my answer is I'm in many places. It's almost more important to find where I don't want to look as opposed to what I'm targeting specifically. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a great story. I, I totally love the, the the idea of picking more steady eddy markets versus the cyclical markets that can go like up and down like a yo-yo. So I, I, <laughs> I share that thought as far as a long-term uh, investing strategy. But obviously, if you catch the market at the right time, you can do better in some of those um, rapid you know, appreciation markets. But uh, having 60 LLCs, you're almost like you have a, a mini fund of your own. Your whole portfolio is like a, is a, like a fund. So how did you make these investment decisions? Is it only multifamily, number, number one question? Number two question, if you go into other asset classes, what asset classes? And then um, your sponsor selection, especially if you are a passive investor, you, you have to put some faith and trust in some of these company operators and sponsors. So what's been your journey selecting some of these Okay, let's just call them the best operators. Yeah, so um, great question. So definitely not only multifamily. Um, in fact, I started originally in office and retail back in 02, just because I was started with a syndicator who was lifelong friends with my family. I knew I could trust and learn from. So I started with those asset classes and industrial at the same time. Um, but I've expanded to pretty much anything except for hotels and triple net single tenant leases. Um, so I'm currently in self-storage, mobile home parks, apartments, student housing apartments, um, RV parks. I'm also in retail strip centers, retail and closed malls and office and industrial from legacy. I haven't invested in, I don't think in any of those since 2015 with the odd exception. Um, one of my top three or four favorite asset classes for sure is apartments long-term. Um, and uh, so I'm heavily, diverse. I also invest outside of what I call the commercial larger deals. So I also do some, I've done a lot of single family hard money uh, lenders to flippers this year because of supply and demand imbalance in the market that was very in favor of sellers and flippers. Um, but I also uh, sometimes invest equity in flips, buying holds on the single family side. And then I'm involved in all kinds of non-real estate stuff as well, with my primary focus being more predictable cash flow. That's always the common thread for me. Uh, and I prefer to be in a hard asset like real estate when I can. You're preaching to the converted, as they say. Uh, uh, it's funny because <laughs> I run a family of funds and our funds do a lot of what you do on a, a fund level. Like I give you example, a temp opportunity fund would diversify broadly in some hard money loans, great cash flow in some of the these assets you mentioned. It's almost, it, it almost um, 
ironic to hear you mention this because I believe in the strategy. The strategy makes total sense. And the broad diversification, the only drawback, and I don't know what's been your experience, we have so many assets. <laughs> there's, a, there's a job of its own managing the portfolio. It becomes a beast. That's the, one of the major drawbacks. Yeah. And I'll tell you, like, we're talk, we're recording this in early September. I just got my last K1, actually my last two K1s this week, right? And that's like, my account literally has a spreadsheet of my K1s. And we work on it together to make sure I get them all. And we have to track them. I have to add what's new in one year. We have to track what the final K1s are. So what doesn't roll into next year. And so that's where it becomes a little more complicated. And you definitely have to monitor and make sure you're getting the quarterly cash flow payments and the reports from all different sponsors. You have to have like a full on spreadsheet to track it all. The good news is for me, honestly, I feel like most of my work is up front with these opportunities because I spend a lot of time on due diligence, a lot of time trying to figure out if I want to actually invest in something. And then once I've sent my money in, I feel like 80% of my work is done. And then the other 20% is tracking, seeing the performance, asking questions if something isn't performing to projections, all that stuff. But the hard work for me is really more upfront. But I actually, to be honest with you, I'm hyper diversified because I do this full time. I have a big network, so I see a lot of deals. And I'd rather be more diversified and less just because I'm low risk. I do not recommend, and I'm not a financial advisor or anything, but just as a fellow investor, I never recommend anybody to have 60 LLCs because it's probably overkill. But it's just my personality, and it's just what I tend to find, you know? Yeah, I, I, I certainly understand, respect, and appreciate what you've done. And it's funny, our Temple Opportunity Fund is a fund that does this on 60-plus assets. It's a very similar exercise. So many investments you got to manage. One of the major strengths is a well-diversified portfolio, which, which can manage uh, fluctuations, and you could, you could, you could withstand... COVID and any other black yeah. swan event well, but it does create a lot of work uh, managing yeah. the portfolio. And, and uh, it's absolutely true. You have to measure seven times, cut once, because once you send the money into the deal, if the deal doesn't go well, well, you're stuck at that point. So underwriting and, and deal preparation is, is critical. So let's continue the discussion on the sponsor selection, because uh, what you do an individual for your own portfolio, we do on a fund level. And we tend to go deeper with number of sponsors. We, we maintain diversification, but once you find a good one uh, and you see it over, you know, deal after deal after deal, do you go, uh, do you do more deals with them? Do you negotiate um, some improved terms? Do you have sort of programmatic relationships with sponsors where you're going you're to invest in every single one of their deals? Maybe they give you a little better terms. I'm just curious, what, what, what's been your experience in that arena? Yeah, great question. So uh, first of all, to me, I, I tell people, I think it's more important who, who I'm making a bet on than the actual asset itself, with the asset being very important, but just behind that. And so I'm all about who I'm making a bet on because <clears throat> I'm giving control to somebody once I invest with them. And so um, the... I absolutely will invest multiple times. I mean, I've invested over 20 times with one sponsor. I'm currently invested over 15 times with another sponsor, just to give you an idea. So I definitely go heavy with somebody I have a very good, um, you know, gut feel for as well as experience with over time. Um, but at the same time, I have a very hard rule for myself that I do not want to get overexposed to an individual operator, no matter how much I like them. And what I'll do, in fact, I'm running up against this right now, um, where I'm starting to cut down. I've negotiated being able to invest lower and lower minimum investment chunks with the sponsor to keep going into their deals that I really like, just so that I continue to get diversification, but not over allocating. But to answer your question about negotiation, as an individual investor, I'm not investing big enough chunks to really be able to negotiate anything. 
I do have an investor group that's kind of a side focus for me that, uh, you know, I send a small subset of my, what I'm investing into my group. And in those cases, I can leverage the size of my group or maybe other groups I might bring in to then negotiate terms, negotiate changes in the operating agreement, all kinds of other things. But as an individual investor, I, I really can't negotiate terms typically. It's take it or leave it, um, you know, with a specific sponsor. And I'm not programmatic. I, I will never make a commitment to invest in every deal from a sponsor. There are sponsors that I line up so well with in philosophy that I know that when they bring it to me, there's like eight or nine, 10 out of ch chance that I'm actually gonna wanna invest in that deal because we're on the same page and the same philosophy and the same conservative nature. But I still pass on some of those deals because you're never gonna be like 100% aligned with somebody, you know? So I don't do fully programmatic, like automatic investing with somebody. Yeah, understood. And uh, your comments with your uh, investment group, uh... We, we certainly appreciate that. I call it strength in numbers. I, I know other fund managers when we look like a deal, the amount of work required to review the deal or to identify the sponsor is flat. It's almost like a fixed amount of work. Yes. Almost a shame not to be able to get better terms. So you got to know other people, other fund managers, other investors who could uh, write the check into the same deal. And, and the conversation with the sponsor is, hey, I know 10 people. I don't give investment advice. They'll make their own decision. But I have a pretty good chance that they'll make a decision if you give us a little better terms. So that's the conversation that can take place, uh, obviously within the the rules of um, you know not not advising your group and, uh, on 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 without providing the investment advice. It's obviously a licensing issue, but the strike for numbers still works uh, if they can make their own decisions. Uh, yeah, hundred percent agree, um, and uh, there's no doubt that leverage can be a very good thing. That was great. So now going back to, uh, let's just talk a little bit about the terms of the deal. Just curious what you see out there. And then I see kind of a, almost a wild west. you got great sponsors who start with great deals and then they gravitate to the deals that are more favorable to them and less favorable to investors as they build reputation. And then on the other side, I see sponsors that are very consistent. They have very similar waterfalls day in and day out. They don't change the game. And then uh, I, I see situations where the sponsors start with crappy terms, realize they can't raise capital and they go back and then they change, they improve the terms. And so what are you seeing out there? What's your typical waterfall you invest in? Uh, just curious and obviously can vary by asset class, which you see in storage may be different from multifamily yes. versus shopping plazas. Yes. So generally speaking, I've seen everything you just mentioned for sure over time. Uh, so the, what's happened is that you know, I, I'm considering the cycle we've just gone through from 2009 still to be active, and I'm still waiting to see if there's going to be a reset. So that's my own opinion. So if you look at this past cycle from 2009 to present, we've seen a, uh, I've seen a bit of a preferred return reduction across most sponsors as cap rates have come down, the returns are coming down just to be fair to them. I typically in the past would target a minimum 8% preferred return starting in 2009. That's kind of changed to seven just to be realistic. But here's the reality of my situation, to be totally honest. I have been philosophically on the sidelines since the end of 2016 and a net seller uh, philosophically because that's when I was worried that valuations across all asset classes were too high and we were kind of end of cycle timing from a typical cycle timing perspective um, for various reasons between Trump having stimulus in 2018 when normally there wouldn't have that to extend the cycle. Then we ended up in a record long cycle, economic cycle. Then we had the stimulus from the pandemic that's now extended things further. And so things have continued to go up and compress. Uh, and what I've done is since the end of 2016, I've only invested in stuff that's been either unique, very unique situations, or where I haven't have to worry about a depreciation in the value of the asset, which is non-real estate related often. 
So um, I actually just invested in a very unique apartment deal a month ago um, that was had to do with the tax abatement strategy. I have a little low income housing tax credit deals also. Again, these are risk mitigators in the event of a downturn. Um, and but I don't typically invest in a heavy value add strategy. So it's hard for me to invest in a lot of deals I'm seeing these days that require heavy value add to make sense of the numbers and the current valuations going forward. And it's just not what I tend to focus on. So I, I'm doing less volume than normal, but still trying to figure out what to do um, it, it, while I'm waiting to see what happens. Once the stimulus subsides, the eviction moratoriums go away, the mortgage forbearance goes away, and all the artificial nature of what's been going on goes away. So I can see what is really happening. Will there really be an adjustment in the market? Is the stock market kind of correct? And I've been sitting and waiting. I waited between 2005 and 2008, and it was an agonizingly long wait. And I'm doing the same thing now, but it's being prolonged by you know, the even bigger amount of stimulus been happening. So that's what's going on in my world at the moment. Yeah, great commentary. Appreciate your wisdom. It is almost like uh, the government uh, continuous intervention just uh, prevents any kind of recession. And uh, I don't know if there's any political will to allow any kind of recession, um, at least for, for the foreseeable future. It's a good question, but you know, I would, so I was discussing this with someone uh, an hour ago. The question is, if you believe that the government is going to prevent cycles, okay, and adjustments, then you could just invest in anything you want all day long and then you have no worries, right? If you still believe cycles exist, which I do, then you have to be very careful and then question whether investing right now when we have record high uh, stock market ratios for including the Buffett indicator for the most part, if not almost record high compared to the dot-com era, record high leverage and a margin in the stock market and all the rest of it, it's hard for someone like me to, who believes in cycles that still exist, that, that cycles still exist, to get on board right now unless something's really unique and has some type of protection factor going into a potential adjustment. Yeah, yeah I, I believe in cycles as well, uh, but I also haven't grown up in the former Soviet Union and seeing centralized government and the control and what, what I've seen what has happened with Fed and the Fed action is that they've basically remove the risk from the system. Well, they didn't remove the risk. They said they will, we will always step in. We will always solve any problems that come forward. As a result, we're seeing essentially very low risk premiums in the entire stock market and in real estate. Nobody's paying for risk uh, today. Nobody's assuming any risk. Right. So the market is kind of set for perfection, but it continues to roll forward. And um, uh, Fed, Fed continues to find reasons why not, uh, start pushing the rates up again, and they're going to continue probably very easy monetary policy. And, and then the government, uh, at least for some, some out of another year or two, is very motivated to continue to this midterm elections, obviously, and then re-election. And then this, this seems to be never-ending game, at least. It, it's been an, an incredibly, um, yeah, being patient investor, being Warren Buffett has been a tough um because I, I, I follow Warren Buffett. I love the philosophy. You always want to get a great value. It's not about finding... Uh, what, what I believe is, interestingly enough, we, we shifted here. So here's a thought. Maybe you have some commentary. So Warren Buffett uh, believe, believes into buying uh, a great assets and paying a fair price and getting a, a great price on fair assets. So in this type of environment where you can't find... Um, it's become very difficult to find... Um, Great deals. So the, the, the great deals are extremely hard to find unless it's heavy value add. And you mentioned you don't want to get involved. 
We like some heavy value ads in our Temple Growth Fund because that's a fund's mandate and we don't mind. Uh, some of these hotel conversions to multifamily have been phenomenal deals. And these repositioning of some COVID impacted assets still makes pretty good sense. But the value add aside in the, I guess, long-term investing space as a passive investor, where do you see um, these great assets? Are they just based on demographic trends? People are moving from California to Austin. I've heard some of these wonderful conversations, the new Silicon Valley forming there, some of these strategic decisions just to move the capital into some more business-friendly markets where some of these long-term trends are set, set, setting in versus looking for a bargain in some other markets, which you don't see you know, a lot of great opportunities in the long run. Great question. And right now, honestly, it's hard to get a read on it because I have a lot of conversations with people about this. You know, I live in LA in a relatively expensive area. And I actually know people who just checked out for a year and went to Montana, went to Hawaii because they can afford to, right? And, and some of them are thinking about permanent moves. Some of them may permanent, some of them aren't sure. But the question is, once this pandemic is behind us, plus or minus, what's that really going to look like, right? Are these the Montanas of the world really going to become a permanent situation or not? And nobody knows yet. So if you're a relatively low risk investor like me, you have to wait to see what really happens, right? Uh, if you're a more speculative investor, then you probably go for the Austins of the world and stuff that makes sense right now. What I will say, what I do, because I'm on a different risk profile, is I will continue to focus on the long-term trends in the U.S. So I'll tell you, pre-COVID, what was very obvious is that Texas and Florida were the top two states for projected uh, population migration because of retirement, because of the weather and stuff. And there are others, too, on the East Coast and stuff that are very obvious. Those markets, to me, I mean, they'll probably continue to be in demand no matter what, right? Because that's where the population was trending regardless of COVID. Um, the concept that we need low-income housing is not going away anytime soon. That's why I love mobile home parks. I love apartments for that reason. Um, and those are really good examples. Self-storage is an example. I think those are great opportunities, despite the fact that they can be built and there's less um, barriers to entry in certain markets. Um, you know, in, in all the areas that I think are going to have a pickup in population, they're going to need more self-storage, right? And so there's going to be a lot of demand in very specific markets, especially when people are moving and a lot of people were retiring and downsizing and moving to those markets. So even better case for self-storage. And then senior living is an example. Demographics, that's just what it is with age, aging population. And we already know that as of 2022, 23, there's going to be a significant uptick in demand for it based off the aging trends, right? So those are just four great examples of asset classes that make sense regardless of the pandemic effect over the next 10 years that someone like me who's looking for predictable cash flow could probably have a higher probability of predictability in the right markets, right? So that's the way that I look at it. I try not to get distorted by the short term and I'm not going to speculate just with my own nature. So that's what I would have told you the same answer pre-pandemic. And I think those all still make sense now. Yeah, I, I appreciate your wisdom. I, I, I want to say great minds think alike. I have a very similar philosophy in, the, in, the, in, in this uh predictable i mean this one word if to describe real estate is predictability relative to stock market and, and many other investment classes and what you just mentioned these sub sectors of real estate are very predictable not guaranteed but pretty predictable and the general demographic trends people moving to florida and, and texas are i mean they've, they've been around and they're going to continue probably over the next years and 
both from a retirement perspective and, and just business-friendly states. Um, so, Jeremy, I, I you know there's a great expression, all good things must come to an end, unfortunately. This has been going great, but I, I'd like to have you back on another episode because this is half the journey. We need to continue the journey, but we're running out of time. So just two you know, final thoughts on um, what you said. And uh, is, if there's folks that want to reach out to you and ask you a question, is there, are you accessible? If it is, how would folks reach out? Yeah, sure. So just final thoughts. Um, you know, if you're a conservator like me, just try to take into account the bigger macro picture, what all evaluations look like right now. And if you're going to look at a specific deal, just make sure you're 100% comfortable with the possibility of the climate changing or not changing in the next, in the short term, as opposed to the long term, you know, and make sure you're investing for that. Uh, as far as anyone's welcome to reach out to me, I'm happy to help and network and talk to anybody. So my email is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at rollinvestments, R-O-L-L, investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate your wisdom. Thank you for sharing. And let's schedule another one. I'd love to have you back. We'll continue this because I have a lot of great questions, but we got to keep the attention span of the audience. If you make this uh, an hour conversation, you just can't can't do it. So we'll do another half an hour another time. Sounds good. Thanks again. I hope this is helpful for everybody who's listening. And thanks again for having me on. Oh, I think you were awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fund Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fund book, head to BigMikeFund.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot in. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.